the people that uh, get the privileged opportunity to watch grow and mature and see the maturation of their faith, to see their family, their children, for a dad to stand up here with his son beside him and see the, the passing on of spiritual knowledge, and it's so exciting. I'm going to break preacher protocol this morning by reminding, because I did this on Wednesday night, Sherry and I are going to be out of town for almost two weeks to go see our son, Austin, in Alaska, Austin, Lauren, and grandbaby, Lara, cover the whole uh, family. And it's preacher protocol to not tell your church family when you're going to be out of town. Because obviously everybody chooses to go to Lakeside Assembly on the days when the preacher is out of town. However, number one, I wanted to share this with you because, uh, number one, my son is in the military. And uh, if your son was in the military and was in Alaska and you could go to Alaska and really reduce your expenses greatly, you would go too, right? Number two, the primary reason that I mention it is that in my absence, what gifted communicators, preachers, and heart of preaching that we have in our church family from Wednesday night to Sunday morning, and our own Jace Holmes is going to be preaching next Sunday morning, uh, Shane's teaching Wednesday night, then um, JoJo's going to preach the following Sunday, Jace is going to do a Wednesday night, and I'll be back for that next Wednesday, but I'm going to still let Shane teach that last Wednesday when I'm coming back into town because I'll be kind of fatigued most likely from that red-eye flight that Sherry and I <laughs> got coming out of Alaska. So the reason why I'm saying that is, is these guys, not only do they need your support in ministry, as of, uh, it's just good to give them encouragement, to let them know you appreciate their growth. Paul told Timothy, he said, give yourself wholly to these things that thy progress may appear before all so that you can see uh, how much they are growing in their faith and their ministry and their gifting and their calling, and you can encourage them. But number two, you will receive something from the Lord. These guys are gifted, and God's put words in their heart, and they bring a passion and a zeal, and so there'll be no, there'll be no letdown. Come on, somebody. There'll be no letdown. There'll be just actually, you know, that's the way things are supposed to go. The next generation should build upon the previous generation. So I'm excited. I'll be holding them up in prayer uh, while I'm reeling in that big halibut. Never mind. I'm sorry. I, but I will be praying about that somehow. Would y'all stand with me? We're going to go to the Word of God today. Listen, I'm transparent. I broke preacher protocol to do that. So what that means is Monday I'm going to be calling, checking in attendance. So Luke chapter number 7. Let's go there. I appreciate Dwayne and Lori up in the booth. Don't you, church family? They're doing a fantastic job of just uh, things are getting more uh, seamless in our coordination, and we appreciate all those that are helping at some level of ministry. I'll tell you a little bit more about this message after we read the, the scriptural text here. There's a short passage here and also one verse in Titus. This is probably a familiar verse or passage of scripture to you if you've read the New Testament for any period of time. And so I'd like to read it as 10 verses of Scripture and then one verse out of the book of Titus. Now let's read it, let's read it slowly and let's look at these words and kind of let them sink down in your spirit. It says, Now when he had ended all his sayings, in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain, notice the words, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. 
And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, they said, and he hath built us a synagogue. Now, if that is, uh, if this synagogue was in Capernaum, where Jesus is at, there, uh, the, the, the ruins of it are still there. On our journey to Capernaum, we stood over the foundational stones of this original first century synagogue. So we've, it's still there, is what I'm saying. The, the remnant of this man's testimony is still there. And so then Jesus went with them. He agreed. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, Trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy. Now, notice his words. For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Isn't that powerful? Verses 8 through 10. For I also am a man set under authority having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. I've told you before, there were two things in the word of God that caused Jesus to marvel. One was unbelief, and the second was an exhibition of faith. That he had longed to see and finally he had visibly saw and heard the testimony, the profession of faith of one who believed. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. And that's a great place to say amen. Now we turn to Titus chapter number 2 for one verse of Scripture. Titus being uh, a part of the pastoral epistles. As Paul is writing to Titus, he is left in the island of Crete to set things that are in order or to set in order the things that are lacking. Here he says one word. That's how the, that's how the epistle begins. Titus, I have left you in Crete that thou mightest set in order the things that are lacking and ordained elders in every city. And here, about two-thirds throughout the letter, he said, after he's given him strong instruction in his apostolic ministry, he says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. That's a strong word, isn't it? Paul is saying to Titus, preach the truth, square your shoulders back. Even if you face a little bit of backlash, if you know it's right, go forward with it. Amen? I want to talk to you today from this thought. A man, and I don't mean man as a, just necessarily a men, but mankind in that sense, both men and women in the right context, which we'll explore that and expound that in a moment, but under authority. Catch those words, a man under authority. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And God, here it is. Father, since Tuesday of this week, I've been contemplating and working this message out in my own heart and mind and praying and asking for direction. Here this moment has arrived. And I'm asking today 
that with even greater clarity than what I received the word, that, Father, I'll be able to deliver the word. And with greater ability than I possess to receive the word, I pray that my listening audience, my family and friends, God would receive the word of God today. And we will learn a truth that has so much potential tied to it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. And you can be seated. Can I take you real quickly one more time into the life of the pastor in sermon preparation for just a moment of time? Because I'd like for you to, to see this with me if you can. I'm going to try to change glasses for just a moment to see if that helps. These are real glasses instead of reading glasses. In case somebody's preparing to throw something, I'd like to be able to see it today. But oftentimes, as a pastor, when the Lord drops a word in your heart and you begin to study, you study for the purpose of sermon preparation. It's the requirement. At the end of the day, come Sunday, Saturday night and Sunday morning, I have to be prepared to speak. There's an expectation that you have that when you get here that there's going to be a word. It's going to be uh, defined at some level and, and hopefully arranged to the, in the right uh, capacity that you can receive it, that you can understand it. And so, so oftentimes that's the case, and you sit down and you start to study, and your purpose of study is for sermon preparation. And so, but what I found myself when I had a thought get in my heart on Tuesday, I found myself studying for the singular purpose in my life of learning something that I, I just had this thought on, and then I thought, could, could it be God? Is there so much contained in this simple truth right here? And so that's where I'm at today. So I'm still learning. I'm still growing, and I don't mean, of course I'm still learning, but I'm still learning about the subject matter that I'm dealing with today. And I don't want to misstep, and I don't want to misplace, or I don't want to uh, say something that's not true, but I just think there's a mystery contained in the revelation of the words of the centurion. So let's see if we can recount this and then go somewhere with this for just a minute. The scriptural narrative plainly says that it's a certain centurion. Jesus has entered into Capernaum. Capernaum is the seaside city where Jesus has made his headquarters at this time. It's also the hometown of uh, some of his disciples or apostles, the apostle Peter primarily, the house Jesus often stayed at when he is at Capernaum. The narrative reveals to us that a centurion, a Roman centurion, not just any Roman centurion, but a certain Roman centurion. That meant that there was a testimony attached to this man that had caused awareness by not only the Jewish community, but the, the, the movement that Jesus has started. He's known to a degree within that pocket of people as well. And so when they approach Jesus, the Jews, because the centurion noticed that his servant, let me clarify for you real quickly what a Roman centurion is. When you think of a centurion, you think of a soldier over 100 other soldiers, but that's actually not the case. He's actually over about 60 to 80 soldiers, but there's anywhere from 20 to 40 servants that are connected to that, you know, we call it in today's military, we call it like platoons or flights, things of that nature. So I don't know what it necessarily was called in, Ro in Roman, uh, you know, the military order. But over that, that, that what we call, again, the centurion, it's not necessarily a hundred soldiers, but there's 60 again. And there's these men that are servants, and perhaps even women that are servants. And there's one that's really dear to his heart, and he's sick. 
and, and, and I'm sure because he's sick, they've done everything that they can to administer the medicine of the day to him, to treat him, and it's with no avail. And so the centurion, like so many in that day, has heard about a rabbi that's come up through Judaism, that there's a testimony that's following him, that he's a healer. Now, Jesus is not the first healer to arise in Israel. They were a people that believed in covenant promises of healing. But he's a healer arising to the degree where miracles are happening at a level that's never been seen in human history previously. And actually, it's never been replicated from that time to this. And that Jesus is ministering healing and people are being supernaturally healed. And the centurion hears about it. And so he supposes in his mind that if this roving rabbi... Uh, truly cares about people that based upon his testimony if he can send the Jews that maybe the Jews will have enough uh, credence or clout with this roving rabbi that he will come to his house and heal his servant and so he actually asked the leaders of the Jews I'm telling you this is one of those unique passages of scripture where Jesus is actually working together with the Jewish leaders in a local community because oftentimes he had become an outcast to the Jewish leaders. So when the Jewish leaders arrive at where Jesus is staying, they begin to try to talk him into coming. And you've read that in the narrative, but I'm just painting and broadening the picture for you because I want you to see it because you've got to feel its impact here in just a moment. You've got to feel the impact of the words that are spoken. And so they, they begin to, uh, to explain to Jesus. Now, look, this is more than just a centurion. This is not just someone who is aligned to Rome because Rome was oppressive. And most Jewish people looked upon Rome in a negative sense. But in this particular instance, the Jews said there's something different about this centurion because he loves our nation. Like, did you catch that? He loves our nation. What are you talking about? The Jewish people saying, yeah, he's from Rome. And he's here because he's been assigned an assignment by Rome. But he's got genuine compassion for the Jewish people. And he's taken his resources from his prestige and his power and his position. And he's actually built for us a synagogue where we're able to pass our faith, the Jewish faith of Judaism, onto our descendants. And we're able to do so in the comfort of this synagogue that this man has used his resources to provide. So they're doing this to try to convince Jesus that this man is worthy for you to go to his house and the Jews didn't always believe that he would heal they didn't always believe but they thought man we've heard your testimony as well so if you can do something for this man go ahead so Jesus consents as we read in the scriptural account and along the way when he's getting close to the house maybe the centurion had been watching from the window casement and maybe he sees the band of followers Jesus and his band of followers including the Jews in the distance and when he does, he decides within himself that he's not going to let Jesus come into his house. So he turns again to another servant, a couple of servants this time, and he sends them quickly from the home, way out into the, past the yard, into the field, just in the horizon when he begins to see Jesus coming to his home. And he says, tell him these words. It's a powerful expression and profession of faith. I want you to note for just a moment what he says. First of all, he declares that he himself, with the prestige of Rome conferred upon him as a centurion in the greatest army of the world, is looking at a roving rabbi, and he tells the roving rabbi, I, in my position uh, that is connected to the greatest empire in the world, I'm not worthy that you, 
A man that doesn't even know where he'll lay his head, remember that's what Jesus said, the Son of Man does not even have a place to lay his head, is staying in someone else's quarters. He said, I'm not even worthy that you would come underneath my roof. That's a position of humility right there, isn't it, church family? I don't know about you, but that's the way I feel about Jesus today. I'm not even worthy that he would come. I'm just so grateful that he did. Aren't you today, church family? And then he said, let's go further than that. Not only am I not worthy to come to, 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 for you to come to me, I'm not even worthy to leave my house and to stand in your presence. Then he goes farther. And he said, but this is the, my request. My request is this right here. Just open your mouth. Now, typically, someone that has healing gifts we often want them to lay hands on us. We even see that in the biblical narrative. We even want to have faith where we reach out and take hold of the hem of his garment. We see that in the biblical narrative. But in this particular instance, this man believed in an authoritative word so much that he said, you don't even have to take another step on the journey upon which when you left Capernaum to come to my house, you don't have to take another step. If you'll just stop where you're at and clear your throat, and if you'll but open your mouth and speak a word that's locked inside of you, there's enough power in your word that I believe that my servant who's about to die and the medical community has given him, has given up on him, and we've already prepared to pull the plug, and he's not going to live another day. But if you'll but speak the word, then I believe that my servant shall be made whole. Man, that's a powerful. And when Jesus heard that, now remember, he's used to hearing people in, uh, in a skeptical response to healing. In a, I'm not so sure, or can it really be? Or if he's doing these miracles, they're fake. Or he's doing these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. That's what he's used to hearing. And now, that's what he's used to hearing amongst his own countrymen. And now here's a Gentile, Roman centurion who catches a hold of the power and the potential that God has in his word. Man, that's good right there, isn't it? I could stop right there and just say, you know what, I've had, I've delivered you a word. And so Jesus said, I, he was, very few times Jesus is almost taken back in shock and he's in shock. He marvels that this is what I've been looking for. You know what? He's still looking for that today, church family. He's looking for a church who'll believe him. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? I pray to the Lord regularly these words. I say, Lord, the Scripture says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, searching for those that you may show yourself as mighty on their behalf. If you're looking for somebody to display your power in, if you're looking for somebody to allow your spirit to flow through, then God, let your eyes go no farther than 1820 Little Rock Road. That's my address, by the way, because I'm trusting that God still wants to do great things in the generation in which I live. And maybe God's just looking for somebody who will believe what he said and trust his promises today. Amen? We're trusting in the Lord. It's a powerful revelation here in the Word of God. But I want you to see, now I could just stop right there and just develop this about us be learning to speak the Word of faith. I believe in the Word of faith. I do. The Word of faith is near you. It's in your heart and in your mouth. The Word of faith that which we preach. I believe in that today. But I, it was something else that caught my attention that I want to draw your attention to very quickly. Consider the words of the centurion 
very carefully. I wrote it this way in my sermon preparation. The obvious is inferred by his words. Listen to what he said. There's an obvious. Let me catch this, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that. He said this in relation to him being a centurion in the Roman army. He said, I've got soldiers under me. And I said to one, go, and he goes. Whether I'm, I'm, I'm sure in his mind he's saying, the centurion by now is not a young man. He's probably, it's hard for me to say it, a slightly middle-aged man like other people in this church. He's not a young man, so he is giving instruction to a military soldier who's more physically strong and uh, uh, fresh from the battlefield. But he said, I tell one soldier to go. And he goes. And I tell one, hey, come over here. And he comes. And then I tell the whole group, let's get up and let's get busy. And they all get up and they start doing things. And, he's, and, and, and so I, I said this as I, as I wrote this, is that, is that there's something that he said that we've got. The obvious is he's a man in authority. But it's inferred. It's not stated. But when he spoke about the reason why they come when he says come and the reason why they go when he says go and when the reason why they do when he says do, it's not because he's a man in authority, he said. He didn't put that as the precedence for the reason why that when he spoke he got response. But he said the reason why I speak and I get a response is not because I'm a man in authority but because I'm a man under authority. And when I started thinking about that, I thought, my God, we've got this thing all way out of place here. Something's at work. There's a revelation of truth if you and I can see this. And so let me, if you think about that for a moment, yes, he is in authority. He's in authority because he's under authority. His power comes from a greater source than himself, the Roman Empire. And I want to take a moment of time and I want to transition from that biblical narrative because it was from that moment that I got off on a trail in my pursuit of my studies because I said, God, we, everybody wants to be in authority. Everybody wants to say, come, and they come. Go, and they go. Do, and everybody does. But I'm not sure everybody wants to be under authority. Oh, I knew it would get real quiet in here when I got to the good stuff, but that's all right. I want to ask you today, who is really in authority today? There's a lot going on today in the world, and there are political leaders, and there's conflict and potential conflict. You've got uh, the communist China flexing its muscles, and you've got Russia once again flexing its mus muscles, and now you've got an arrogant Iran, right? And then we've got Trump. Uh, in America and all this. But let me tell you who's in charge today. It was a carpenter's son from Galilee who entered Jerusalem meek on a fold uh, and, and, and he entered into the city. But see, he's been lifted. See, he humbled himself before God. He endured the weight of the cross. Uh, and the God who sits above all things reached down and took him from his place of humility and put him in his place of preeminence. Uh, and he's in charge today, glory to God. That's why someone that's gone through trial here today and someone that's been observing it right here and wondering where's God gets clarity from somebody that says God is in control because he promised in his word he'll make all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. He can say that with a clear conscience because God's proven. He's proven that he's in charge for lack of a better word. 
And the scripture gives us numerous uh, teachings about all authority. That's part of the Great Commission. Jesus said to his apostles, all power in heaven and of earth is given unto me. The scriptural uh, record Jesus said in Revelation, he said, I am he that was dead. Who else can say these words? A lot of good men have lived. A lot of military, com- uh, you know, men that function in uh, leading armies have, have been strong. Who else can say, I am he who was dead, but I am now alive again. And I've got the keys to death and of hell, but the man called Jesus Christ. And he said also to the apostle Peter, and when he said it to Peter, he was saying it to the church. Remember these words, Matthew 6 Jesus said, I say unto thee, Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I believe in the keys to the kingdom, don't you? So obviously, to the church has been committed the authority of Christ. To the church, in the right scriptural narrative, the church has authority committed unto us from he that has the keys to the kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ. So I I wrote it this way. If Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection validated his authority, and I do believe it did, don't you? And the biblical narrative reveals that authority vested in the church. Don't you believe that the church should, should, should have an expression of the authority and the power of God in the earth? Aren't we to be salt and light? Aren't we to be a visible difference maker? A city set on a hill that cannot be hid? Come on, a city that the Bible says that the gates of hell warring against us cannot prevail against what? The church? And so... Where then is the fruitful display of God's power? Where is it? Why is the church becoming more anemic rather than growing stronger? I mean, that's a great question, isn't it? Can I say it again? Why is the church, why is our influence in America diminishing and Hollywood's influence is far greater than the voice of the church? The voice of Hollywood is far greater to shape the moral consciousness of this nation than the pulpits of America today. Well, I'm going to say it one more time because that's unfortunately where we're at. The voice of Hollywood sounds louder in developing the moral consciousness of this nation than the pulpits of America today. That's a problem. That's a problem. And we've got to say, well, where, where's something? We need something to awaken in the church. What it, we need the church to rise. We need the church to rise and be who God's called us to be. Herein lies the problem. Our culture in America and even in the church wants, you ready for this? We want to be in authority, but we don't want to be under authority. There's part of the problem in which we're dealing with. We are the culture of rebellion against authority in America. Mm. We want power, 
We want authority even in the church. We want to be able to bind and we want to be able to loose. We want to be able to tell to go and to come and to do. We want to do all those things, but we don't want to submit ourselves to God and we don't want to submit ourselves to each other. And that's why we're not exercising the authority that God has promised that we have the potential to exercise. So I want to dialogue with this a little bit. Can I do that? Because listen, you say, well, Pastor Brown, you're talking about the church in general. But see, the church in general lives its life through your own individual life, through your, uh, through your family, through your home, through who you are, on the job, whatever you are, whoever you are. That when we talk about the church, we're not just talking about a four-walled white building somehow in the woods, the church of the wildwood with a little steeple on it somewhere. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the ecclesia, the called out ones. We're talking about you being all that God's called you to be and you doing all that God's called you to be, to do. And to, to be an expression of his power, his grace, and his love in a lost and dying world. And, and I want to talk about it for just a moment. Submitting to God by submitting to each other. Let me make a few statements. If you can't submit to God and his created instructed order, you can't resist the enemy nor advance his kingdom. You can't resist your adversary, the devil, and you can't advance the kingdom of God. Now, all of us ought to have a desire within us to advance God's kingdom. And not everybody does. We're so me-centric in our generation, in our culture, when we want everything to be about us so that we can consume it upon our lust. But every one of us have a purpose. Every one of us have been called of God. Not just preachers and pastors and teachers, but every one of us, under the sound of my voice, if you are genuinely born again, there's a reason God did not rapture you upon your profession of faith. Because He's left you here. Like the parable of Jesus, the Son of Man has gone to His kingdom and He's left authority to His servants. God's left you here to be a bride and a shining light to expand the kingdom of God. And so I want, I, I'm going to close in a few moments by sharing the, and, and furthering this point. You cannot resist the enemy nor advance the kingdom of God without your willful submission to the will of God. Can't do it. Fighting against yourself. Does that make sense? Now, if you're not submitted to someone or something greater than yourself, you're not submitted to God. Well, Jesus of Nazareth, Lord, help me. Help strengthen the preacher right now. God, I need it. I need, I need that moment. Let me say it again. I guess when, you, when it's frustrating to hear it, yeah, you know, then I get that, that quiet pause. If you're not submitted to someone or something greater than yourself, you're not truly submitted to God. Because that's why there's a lot of folks out that this building ought to be overflowing. It ought to be overflowing. But they're sitting at home today thinking, well, you know what? I'll just, I'm worshiping God at home. And you're not being submitted to God. You're not being submitted to God. Let's take a minute a little bit about this and just look at the biblical narrative. The rebellion in our culture is clearly seen in our refusing to submit to civil government. Let me say it again. The rebellion in our culture is clearly seen in our refusing to submit to civil government. If we don't like the result of a law or election, we just rebel. We just create a movement, right? And we just get certain people groups and we get certain Facebook pages and we just create a movement and we just rebel. That's not my president. 
or that's not, I don't follow this, or I won't do that. If we don't like the result of it, we just rebel against it. But did you know to the believer, Paul and Peter both taught submission to civil government? At the time when deranged leaders were seated in the positions of authority, these weren't godly men. These weren't men that you wanted to sit down at a social with and look across the table and maybe glean some leadership skills from. We're talking about deranged Nero. We're talking about brutal men. And yet the Bible says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. It's not for me, it's for him. To the king, even as supreme, or to governors. Paul said it if we had read the next verse in Titus. He said, put them to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, and to be ready for every good work. Romans 13 and 1 says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. There is a wave of rebellion in America, and be very careful lest you get pulled into it. Because I'll tell you what, our submission to the revealed will of God means something to God. God's the author of civil government. And I know the biblical narrative says this. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Right? And just because evil people are in, are in high places still doesn't mean that God can't use them. The Bible says that the heart of the king is in the father's hand. And he can turn it like a river. God can take evil men to do his purpose in the earth. And we see that throughout the Word of God. So recognize this. So let's go a little bit farther. What about in the home? Somebody find Sister Sherry. Tell her, I, once again, I need that vehicle parked right outside. How about, I'm going to help you today, first of all. There's some young children from, uh, they're teenagers under the sound of my voice. Let me just tell you today. Go ahead and I'll take you right off of that pedestal. You are not in charge. Let me just go ahead. I'm going to burst your bubble just a little bit. It's not your cell phone. It's not your home, it's not your bed, it's not your clothes. They've been loaned to you by your parents, all right? And so uh, the Word of God says to you, you want to live a long life? Now you think about that. you got to be careful in saying that. There's a reason why God said for your children to know you want to live a long life and honor your father and mother. It might be because if you got too much of a smart mouth, I might take you out. So let's start. Let's, hey, let's set this thing up. Why can't we go back to the beginning? Sometimes you've got to tear it all down and start it fresh again and say let's build it up the way it should be because if we can get it right, there's a potential that we possess by being under authority. Let me go a little bit farther. Then the Word of God says that wives are instructed to be submitted to their husband. You know, I've been talking a little bit about that the latter couple of weeks. There's a lot of movement in America today under the term equality. And I would be labeled easily, easily by the militant feminist movement in America today as a sexist, uh, stereotypical, you know, male uh, limiting and hindering women. Listen, I don't care what the world says. I care what the Word says. And when I read the Word of God, I read that wives submit themselves unto their husbands as it is fit in the Lord. What does that mean? That means if your husband is asking you to do something outside of, the, of morality, then it's not right to do that. God gives the proper connotation. Titus 2 and 5 even uses the term. I know you don't hate it that I use the King James Bible, but I'm going to go ahead. It says, be obedient unto your own husbands that the Word of God be not blasphemed. And I know some of the ladies are saying, you don't know my husband. Sometimes, ma'am, I said it last week, it's an act of faith on your part. 
Sometimes you do it when your flesh don't want to do it. Sometimes you say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. I'm not doing this to build him up. I'm doing this, God, because you have instructed me by the word of God. And I want to make sure that I'm doing what God's called me to do. Paul instructs the woman or the wife to be in subjection and not to usurp authority over the man. The controversial subject of equality should be laid to rest in the kingdom. All are equal value to God, male and female, black or white, rich or poor. God cares for all of us. His son died on that tree that no matter who you are, you would have life and have it more abundantly. But that does not mean that we are all created equal in might, ability, or even authority. I got on this and I, start, I caught something here. Can I talk about this? Are we all right? Let me see how much time I got. Oh, Lord. I'm, I got to stay with it, though. This is where I started studying this out. And I even went to one of the most controversial passages in all the Word of God. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And Jason, 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 is where it talks about that it says this, these words. It says real quickly. It, it, it says that men are the head of their wives uh, and, and that Christ is the head of the man. Have you ever read that? It's in verse number 3 of chapter 11. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. And I even found myself on a few liberal websites that was trying to tell me, well, the head there doesn't mean in the sense of uh, authority or leadership, but it's like the head of a river. It's the beginning point there. And I, I said, well, maybe it does in that passage, but it didn't in other passages. Right? But see, you can make the Word of God read any way you want to read it, right, to satisfy the position that you hold. And then it went into the text. The text began to speak of, for, it was cultural, perhaps, of headdress for women. Because you remember there's that contrast because if someone uh, wasn't in the right relationship or whatever, that prostitution in those days often had their head uncovered. And a lot of that was cultural. And, and then the church jumped in on that. And then we wrestled and we've got our women in the church, or our wives, and we've got headdresses and all these things. And, and I looked at it and I kind of wrote it this way. I said, our culture has rejected both the cover of the head by dress and by the authority of the man. And so I was looking at it for just a moment and said, have we thrown the baby out with the bathwater? That maybe we got caught up in the, the little thing, like the cloth being placed over someone's head and said it's not really about that in the, right, in, in the, in the fullest extent in the first place. It's about establishing the right authority. Because if you establish the right authority, then the blessing can follow. And I told you last week, and I'll say it again, when Paul told the wife in 1 Timothy 2 not to usurp a man's authority, it's not to limit her, but it's to allow her life to have a greater blessing than she ever thought possible. Because the Word of God promises that the anointing flows from the head downward. And if she is seeking to usurp a man's authority, she's trying to put her head in the place of where the oil would flow, and God's not going to put an anointing that's done in rebellion to His Word. Man, I'm going to preach it anyhow because I want to see us get it right. Because if we get it right, we can do what God's called us to do and be what God's called us to be. And so it's not just about women and it's about men. And the men, the men of the church, man, you start trying to tell men how oh, they don't want to hear that. They, they'll just, you know what, they're going fishing next week. They're on the golf course or they're sitting at home watching television. But did you know, men, the Scripture says that you're to obey those that have rule over you and submit yourselves, even to pastoral leadership, because we're watching for your soul. We really care about you. God places us in His body under the watchful eye of shepherds and pastors who watch for your soul. I wrote it this way, and I'm going to be courageous enough to preach it. I'm leaving. 
<laughs> this is why in our generation, many churches are driven by femininity. Men refuse to submit to godly leadership. Leaders in the church, then, I'm a leader in the church, but at the same time, I have willfully submitted to the council of the presbytery. The body of elders, leaders, and pastors. Personally, I'm the pastor of First Assembly of God. In this church, I'm in the seat of authority. But I'm in the seat of authority because I'm submitted to authority. I'm submitted to the Assemblies of God, the General Council of the Assemblies of God, the Arkansas District Council of the Assemblies of God, and the collective voice of this assembly when this body is in session. And it's a willful submission, and it brings the proper order of God. The centurion said, I'm a man under authority, not a man in authority. Church family, we've got to find the rightful place of submission before God. Can I share with you a couple things in closing today? Can I take you to a passage of Scripture? I want you to, Lori's going to turn it on the screen with me, but I want to show you something that I found in this little journey. And I made a connection to something that I had never made before. Can I do that in closing? Are y'all with me out there? Come on, I need a better, when I say, can I do, I need a better response than three. Good Lord. Come on, now this is, how many, this is real. I'm trying to, I want to get it right. I'm tired of being, no, there's no power in the church. Come on, I'm tired of, 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 of contention and strife. Turn to the book of Ephesians for just a moment. And she's going to put some verses on the screen. But I, I want you to, to look at it with me, if you would, for just a moment of time. I, I just want you to see it. I'm going to walk you through it quickly. But I want, you, I, want, I want to take you somewhere. I want you to remember what the centurion said. The centurion said, I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to one, come, and he comes. And to the others, I tell them to do it, and they do it. And he said, the reason why that happens is not because I'm in authority, but because I'm under authority. So don't forget that principle behind this. I'm a man under authority. So I want you to read a verse that you hear me quote quite often in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 17. Let me read it first with you there. He said, therefore, I testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Who are the other Gentiles? People who don't believe. People who do not put their faith in God. I tell you all the time, you can't live like the world lives. You can't let your home be ran like the way that the world runs their home and their life, livelihood. you got to do it God's way. You want God's blessing, you got to do it God's way. Right? And so you can't live, you can't think, you got pondered. That's why you got to renew your mind daily by the Word of God. you got to change. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's got to die. There's a part of your mind that can be renewed, and that's renewed by the revelation of the truth of the Word of God. The next verse says this. You're under, their understanding, the Gentiles, it's darkened. And they're alienated from the life of God. But your understanding has been enlightened. You've got hope. You see things differently. You see things differently according to a revelation of the truth of God's word. Amen? So let's go a little bit farther. We're not going to be unwise, but we're going to understand what the will of God is. That's verse number 17 in chapter number 5. He said, don't be unwise, but I want to know what the will of God is for me. For my family, for my home, and I want to teach those principles to my children. I want to teach them to be yielded to God, submissive to God, to learn, to grow, and to understand the, what the will of God is. Don't you? No matter what the world, the context of the world, that particular passage is talking about the world's culture and the culture of the world. But we're going to search and we're going to know what the will of God is. And then in chapter number 5, verse number 21, what are we going to do? We're going to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. 
Did you hear that, church family? Did you catch this? Follow the biblical narrative. So now Paul is writing again, and he's saying to do those, he said, don't live like other Gentiles. Know what the will of God is. Here's the will of God for your life. Submit yourselves one to another. You know why so many people just are function in the church with their arms stretched out like this? Because Not because they don't like you, but because they don't want to be submitted to the whole. They don't want a sense of accountability nor expectation of their response put upon them. Well, I prayed for the Lord to give me a prophetic anointing, so I'm going to say it whether y'all shut me down or not. God meant for his body to be united together, knit together in love, submitted to one another in the fear of God. Every one of us, the Scripture says. Let's go a little bit farther. We've already read this, but let me show you real quick. The 22nd verse, chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the... You do this as your service to the Lord. Isn't that right? Let's look at verse number 24. The church is subject unto Christ. Right? The church is subject unto Christ. Verse number 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So, man, husband, under the sound of my voice, if you're not loving your wife as your own body and taking care of her and loving her and valuing who she is and speaking kind words of blessing over her, then you're not being submitted to God. And you're walking around like Buford Pusser in your own home, and I'll tell you what, you're in rebellion to God. You can go home with the edge and think you're in authority and still be in rebellion to God. Jesus said the Gentiles try to exercise dominating lordship over their, over, uh, their ranks. He said, but not so among you. He that is greatest among you should be the least. He that's in the highest place of authority then becomes the servant of all. We call it servant leadership in the body of Christ. And we value and we serve. And you know I told you this and I will say it again to my dying breath. I speak and I always challenge the men. And I pray, God, in this feminine-driven generation, raise up a group of godly men and husbands who will take leadership in their home by asserting themselves in love and in humility and in grace. And I challenge men all the time and I'll go to my dying breath by saying this, men, you ought to be the first one up in the morning and you ought to be the last one in bed at night because God's conferred upon you that responsibility of making sure your home is blessed in the favor of God. But see, men don't want that. Our culture just wants to sit back, be lazy and slothful and do nothing and put blame on everybody else. But I tell you what, we're going to break that curse in the name of Jesus. Let's go further. I want to show you something. Chapter number 6. Now the children got to get on this. That means shut up, smart aleck teenager. Hello? That means when mom and dad say jump, you ask how high. That's my interpretation. I don't have any, uh, a translation yet, but that's my interpretation of that. And so children, obey your parents. That's the promise of God. I know I'm just kind of being attempt at being humorous to some. You're thinking, no. It's a failed attempt, but that's all right. Chapter, let's go further. Then he said, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters. That's probably a bond servant. That's probably a servant like the one that was serving the Roman centurion. He said in the sixth, the seventh verse, he said, uh, sixth verse, he said, not with eye service. So we could make that in our uh, world today. We could talk about maybe, maybe that's talking about employers. That's not that bad. And employees, maybe you go out and you work with a work ethic. And humble yourself and respect those that are over you on the job. Right? 
with respect, not to eye pleasers, not to just work when they're around and then hide, but to do everything because God's always watching. God's always watching and seeing what you're doing. And then, look at this. I'm, I'm closing. Look. Right there. Look at this. Here's the famous passage, though. What, what famous passage? Starts at verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He said, take into you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And the reason why I'm bringing this to your attention, I'm going to close on this, and I'm not going to read that final passage of Scripture, is that that's a famous passage of Scripture that teaches us to gird ourselves with the armor of God to lift up our voice and to rebuke and pull down demonic strongholds, which is what the church is called to do. Aren't we? We're, taught, we're called to go into the darkness and to take people as our prize, right? To pull them out of the darkness. And we recognize that we wrestle with demon powers and we pull them down and bind them. And for the first time in my life, I read that last seven verses, eight verses, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, through the lens of submission. Humility, humbling our, and so I arrived at this conclusion. If children aren't being submitted to parents, if wives aren't being submitted to husbands, if husbands and fathers aren't being submitted to the family unit and to the church, and if the church is not being submitted to each other, all we're doing is screaming at the darkness, and we're not advancing the kingdom of God. Because it's out of place. We've got to be under authority before we can really truly be in authority. And so I'm gonna ask everybody to stand. Daryl, would you join me on the platform? And I wanna ask you today. Church family, if I had taken the time, I would have taken you to First Peter chapter number five, where the apostle Peter almost says the same words. He says to the younger. Be submitted to the elder. How many of you are older, you like it when a smart-mouthed young person comes around you and talks like they know a lot more about life? You've been living for 22 years, and I've been living for 72 years, and you know more about life than I do? Hello? And maybe you do, but by revelation. It takes revelation because it's not born of experience, right? Now, I'm not saying God can't, but I'm just saying... It, the, the young need to be humble. I'm not saying God won't use, God will. I wanted to be used of God when I was 22. But I'll tell you one thing I did, I respected those. Even to this day, I respect. There's a biblical record of humbling ourselves before God by recognizing the rightful place and submitting ourselves to that. And when we as the church begin to truly line things up in humility and subjection. I did a word study. Time doesn't allow me, but I looked up subjection, submit, obedience, obey. All of these words about, and you know what it is? Nothing can be forced. Did you know that? Everything's about willful submission. Now, in warfare, a dominating army can force servanthood upon a conquered foe. That's not the way that God uses it. God uses it this way. 
It's about you making a willful decision to submit yourself to his authority by finding your place within the, the model of submission. And then you function in it. And when that happens, I just believe that we can see the church begin to really expand the kingdom of God in power and anointing. And then when you begin to bless your children, you're blessing your children not from a position of rebellion to the will of God, but in a position of authority. Does that make sense today? Because remember what I said. I use terms like advance the kingdom. Now, most people don't get up every morning and say, I want to advance the kingdom. Maybe you should, but we don't. Most of us just talk about, man, I just hope my kids are doing well, right? Uh, I hope that me and my husband are getting along, or I need a job, or whatever that case might be. But what you fail to recognize is, is that God knows exactly where you're at. And he wants you right where you are. If, draw a circle. It might just be one foot by one foot. Step in it. Put your feet down and says, you know what, God, this is it right here. It belongs to me. It's my moment. God, let the favor and the power and the potential that I have in Christ be unlocked in my life. Does that make sense? I'm going to advance the kingdom. Then when I take a step sideways or forward, that I'm going to advance the kingdom of God. When I send my family out, I want them to go in the power of God's grace. It was stated a moment ago about when we go through trial, the world is looking at us. How are we going to respond? Do we only worship during the good times? Do we only worship when we're on the mountain? Yeah, we're going to be in some valleys. And you're going to have to worship from a wounded heart at times. But I'll tell you what, when you do so, and you submit yourself to God and humble yourself before the Lord, then that very favor, that blessing. So today, I want to ask, as our heads are bowed and eyes closed for just a moment, I want you to catch these words one more time. Think with me for just a moment. The centurion said to Jesus, I'm a man. Now, here's what you would think he would say. I'm a man in authority. And I tell one to go, and he goes, and to another come. And he comes, and to another do, and he does. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm a man under authority. I'm under authority. Are you under authority today? Have you submitted your life to God? Have you submitted your home to God? Have you submitted your marriage to God? Have you reached that place where you said, God, I've, maybe I've been in rebellion to you, God. And it took a preacher that had the courage to kind of get right in my business and address these issues. I didn't know that when I was trying to assert myself in this area, I was actually rebelling against you. But today, God, I want to lay it all down. I want to lay it all down, and I just want to come to that fresh place in my life where I'm just submitted to the perfect will of God in my life. Who here would say, say, Pastor, there's some areas in my life that I need to submit to God in. Raise your hand up today. I see hands going up around the room today. Quite a few. I tell you what, I raised my hand. There's some areas of my life. How many of you here today? And I'm going I'm to keep reaching because I asked the Lord to help me. I asked the Lord to help me. How many of you here today could say, Pastor, I just need a moment. It doesn't have to be an hour here at the church. I know we're coming back tonight. Where I just fresh in my heart, just, just, re, just submit 
and commit who I am and what I am to the Lord today. Just to humble myself. Who here would say among the congregation, Pastor, I just want to humble myself. I want to ask you to do something with me. It's past 12, 5 after 12. Would all those in our, that raised your hand and beyond join me right here at the altar for just a moment of time in a prayer of humbling ourselves before God? I know it takes great faith. I know it takes great courage to come forward. I want to encourage all the church family that will come to just say, I just want to humble myself before God. If I had taken the time to read that passage in the Apostle Peter's epistle, he said, if you'll humble yourself before the Lord, you know what he'll do? He'll lift you up. Did you know that? If you'll just humble yourself. Maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you've been frustrated at times. Maybe you looked at certain situations and you just kind of were frustrated with God, like was mentioned earlier today. The greatest thing you can do is just submit yourself to the sovereignty of God. Let's take a moment right where you're at and let's just pray. It's a sweet spirit in here right now, isn't it? I'm not driving this upon you. I'm not coercing or forcing this in your life. I'm not trying to leave you out. Let's say, well, I didn't come to the front, so now I'm embarrassed. Well, no, you can be just as humble and, and, and in humility right where you're at. But I did want to create a, a vortex moment because maybe there was somebody that really wanted to come to the front but wouldn't have came unless somebody else was going with them. Maybe they wanted to come and they would have thought, My, I'll be the only one. But now that there's so many that's come to the front, that it's easy for them to come to the front and just humble themselves. I think that we as a church family, we can all repent of arrogance, things that we've observed in the culture, cultural norms and influences. And we've allowed it to dictate the way we live, how we relate to one another, how we function in our home, in our marriage, in the church. And so, God, we're reminded of what the apostle said, that we would walk not as the other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. I'm not going to think like others. I'm not going to act like other people. I'm not going to allow the culture to dictate for me what's right or wrong or what my role should be or my responsibility is. God, we see today, Father, such a movement that is being painted in order to elevate women, we're having to diminish men. And I just don't think that should be the way it should be. I don't believe we have to diminish men to lift up women. God, today, I pray in the name of Jesus that we're seeing men, under the sound of my voice, truly learn to humble themselves before God, to find a fresh connection in the church so that we can, Father, find our rightful place. God, women have been such a backbone in the church for so many years, carrying a burden and a weight that sometimes they shouldn't have to carry because of the negligence of a husband or a man, a father. But God, if you'll give us a revival, we'll see a change in that. But as we think about this, we're so grateful for the women among us, our wives, our daughters, our mothers in the Lord, and how they display humility and I know that under the sound of my voice, all women are not married and some are single. And all don't have a godly husband. Some have an unsaved husband at home. And it puts a whole different set of challenges on them. But I know that if their heart is truly humble before yours, God, they're going to find a way. They're going to do everything in their power, God, to find that right way in the Lord as it is fit in the Lord, the Scripture says. 
God, help us to get our homes in order because if our home is in order, then the church can be in order. And if the church is in order, God, based upon what I read in the Word of God, there's a promise of blessing that comes to all of us. All of us. Father, the blessing will lift us all. The anointing will lift us all. It won't just be one here or there, but all of us will have the fragrance of Christ. All of us will have the favor of Christ on our lives. We'll experience the goodness, as we sang about, of the Lord. And we'll be so full of His goodness and filled with His goodness that we'll share it. We'll want to give it away. We'll say to those that we work with or in our family, taste and see that the Lord, He is good and His mercy endureth forever. God, today I want to pray a closing prayer. And I know our church family is certainly ready for me to reach that place. But I can't apologize. These mean too much, God. My Father, there's too much at stake. I'm just so tired, Father, of a weak and anemic church without power and anointing and unction and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just pray, God, that if we at First Assembly can start in our own heart and then from there as a church collectively of humbling ourselves fresh and new, then perhaps we'll experience the power to be able to say, go, and things will happen. Do and movement takes place. We'll have power in our words, not because we're in authority. Did y'all hear this? but because we're under authority. Lord, we submit ourselves to you. I bless the people. These are my church family, God. I love them, and I bless them, and I bless their faith and their family and their union and and their communion with you. God of heaven, bless them today to be all that you've called them to be. In the name of Jesus and all God's children said, amen and amen.